I Read Comics, show number 46. wild music for a white girl to have on her show. That's because it's cartoon music. That's the only excuse I have for being able to put that on being, you know, the white middle class woman that I am. Um, So I wanted to play that because I think that is such a good theme song. It's the theme song to a new cartoon that's on Cartoon Network called Class of 3000. You probably guessed that from the lyrics. And um, it just started um, at the end of last year, and it was created by Andre 3000, Andre Benjamin. And he um, decided he wanted to do this kids thing, and it's a really good show. I was surprised. I thought it was going to be stupid. I thought it was, A, either going to be a vehicle for him, which it is and it isn't. He has one of the voice roles, but it's not really about him in the show. Um, and Or B, I thought it would just be um, really like stupid adult take on inner city kids, like an updated Fat Albert. Not that Fat Albert was a bad show or anything, but, you know, like not really real. And it actually has turned out to be a really good show for a couple of reasons. One is the music. He writes a new song for every show, and the songs are really good. Um, they incorporate the characters. So um, just to give you the background to the show, in the show... Andre's character is called Sunny Bridges, which is why they sing that in the bridge there uh, of the theme song. And he's supposed to be this world-famous, fabulously rich jazz musician who came back to Atlanta to teach at the high school, the performing arts high school, where he went to school to give something back to the community. But he's still really rich and everything. It's not like the court made him do it or he's suddenly poor. Uh, so he teaches at this school, which is sort of an impoverished school. They're always, you know, lacking money. And it's about his class of kids that he has who are all very talented. And like all cartoons, there are multiracial. So there's black kids and white kids and Asian kids. And um, there's hmm, there's no Hispanic kids. But the, teach, the, the principal of the school is a, a Hispanic guy. And there's a, a multitude of ethnicities throughout the school, too. So it's pretty balanced in that way. And I think they actually do a pretty good job of showing what the kids are. There's a huge fantasy element to it, which I like a lot. They're not pretending that it, it's realistic. You know, there's, like, monsters in the sewer. And, and um, in the most recent episode that I saw, the kids are um, 
having some kind of, uh, they're watching something, I forget, at school, and they're very bored, and they look out the window. Oh, it's an election. That's what it is. And there's Mothra and Godzilla fighting in the city of Atlanta, and it's it's really good. So there's a ton of really good pop culture references thrown in, some of them very overt like that one, which I think anybody would get. And then other things like there are upperclassmen at this performing arts school, and one of them is Marlon Brando, and the other is Jack Nicholson. And I think they're called Marlon and Jack, and they have their voices, and they look just like them. And it's just, it's weird. They're there for no reason at all. Just there. And I like that. Uh, The other thing is that the art is really good. The characters are drawn in a very stylized way, very kind of 60s, loopy, very loose looking. So they're not meant to be realistic at all. They're not even comic book like. They're really cartoony, uh, which gives it a very distinctive look. And the uh, the backgrounds are mostly fairly realistic looking, but they do this very interesting technique of washing colors over it. So they, um, although things are colored correctly in most cases, they they look like watercolors or like uh, sort of more modern art versions where they're uh, like splat- splotches of color, and sometimes it it looks like it's been washed over with water, so the colors are really runny. And then other times it's just completely not realistic color, and a whole scene will be red or a whole scene will be purple or something. But visually, it's really, really interesting. Um, Each song that's in each episode has a fantasy sequence associated with it where it's some take on what has happened in the episode so far. And that's usually pretty inventive, too. And they they go pretty far out there on a limb. Um, And the songs are in all different musical styles. There's the stuff that Andre 3000 normally does. There's rap stuff. And then there's really good jazz-influenced stuff. They did a, a really good blues song. The newest episode had a kind of 60s uh, or 50s girl group thing happening, which was also really well done. And I think um, in most cases, the people who do the voices for the kids are the ones who sing the songs. Once in a while, they'll have somebody extra come on and do it. So I really like it. I think it's a very fun show, and I really appreciate exposing kids to music like this in in a, um, a more naturalistic way. Like, they're supposed to be songs. They're not supposed to be, like... Uh, you know, part of the action. There's songs that are set apart from it. And there's a lot of emphasis on being a good musician and, and learning your instrument. They, they kind of hammer that theme home all the time. And Andre Benjamin is not the greatest voice actor in the world, but, you know, who cares? He's getting better. He's better than he was in the first couple of shows. Um, and his character is pretty funny and has some, some good one-liners um, and is shown to not be perfect and is sometimes really stupid and vain and does dumb things and allows his emotions to get the best of him. So he's not the perfect adult character either. So yay for Class of 3000, but I just love that kick-ass theme song. It's so good. Uh, Okay, so that was the the fun thing that I wanted to talk about. Now I have to do another pimpage for WonderCon because, oh my God, it's coming up in just a couple days. So WonderCon, San Francisco, Moscone Center, starting um, March 2nd, which is Thursday. And once again, I will read the thing. So Sunday morning at 1130 is going to be comics podcasting. This is what they say. Podcasting has become a significant force in the world of comic books. (laughs) Really? Come join podcasters Lena Taylor and Logan Hall of the I Read Comics podcast, along with Connor Kilpatrick and Ron Richards from iFanboy.com, and discuss the fine art of talking about comics on the web. Whether you've got questions about doing your own podcast or just want to see some of the faces behind the voices, this is the place to be. Uh, It's in room 220. I have no idea where that is because I can't remember where anything is in Moscone Center. So that's where I'll be. There's a ton of stuff happening at WonderCon. There's some Spider-Man related stuff happening on Saturday, which I want to see. They're also showing the 
uh, Grim Adventures of Billy and Mandy movie. This is a preview, and the creator, Maxwell Adams, is going to be there, which I'm pretty excited about. Um, in, in addition to all the other stuff, they're showing Frank Miller's 300, but I don't really have any interest in seeing that. Um, on the same day, on Sunday, there's a couple of other uh, woman-y things happening which I would like to go see, and hopefully I can I can tolerate whatever is going on. Um, there's a panel at 12.30 to 1.30 called Kick-Ass, Female Protagonists in Print and Beyond. Uh, it's not just Buffy anymore, blah, blah, blah. Female heroes are everywhere, fighting evil, solving crimes, and more. So uh, Linda Medley, who did Castle Waiting, is going to be there. Uh, Vicki Patterson, Scent of Shadows, and Ellen Clagis from Green Glass Sea. Um, so that's going to be interesting, um, and I hope that it's a good discussion, and maybe I'll have to speak up about things. And then there's another panel later on called uh, Gender and Genre. Today, more than ever, genre shows and comics are creating dynamic, interesting, and fully developed female characters. Uh, and Pia Guerrero is going to be on that panel, too. So those could be good. So again, if anybody's going to be at WonderCon and you want to say hello, send me an email and let me know or come to the podcasting panel and say hello there. Um, I won't have anything fun to give out except some postcards. I don't have like a stash of those skeptic calendars or anything because like they only sent me one free and I had to buy the rest. Um, So sadly, I can't do that. I can't give my fans what they want. I, I say that as a joke. I don't think I actually have fans. I think I have listeners and Really, that's plenty good enough for me. And the iFanboy guys are great, so you should definitely come to hear them if you don't care what I have to say. <laughs> Listen to the iFanboy guys, because they're cool. Okay, so that's good stuff. Um, I will mention again that Comic Relief is going to be there and have a huge booth, so please go there and buy lots of stuff. And um, I also wanted to mention that um, because of this podcast, I think, my my dear, dear friend Ginger Mayerson, whose music you hear on this show... Um, got an inquiry from a guy who's a filmmaker who said he wanted to use some of her music in his film, which just thrills me to death. So I'm extremely happy about that. And um, I hope that uh, part of the mission of this podcast is to bring her beautiful music to a whole new audience. So I was just so so thrilled about that. I had to mention it. So now I'm going to do a little bit of rant um, about a thing that did not thrill me this week. And then I'm going to get to the meat of the episode in, in a little bit, which is talking about Young Avengers, which is something I really, really like. And then I'm going to close with a cool, cool song. Um, there are a lot of different uh, live journal groups that I belong to, some of which have very, very little traffic. And I just join them because they look interesting. And I joined one called uh, Comic Fangirls a while ago. And people post there once in a while. And, you know, there's nothing much going on, whatever. So last week... Um, a boy, self-identified comic fanboy, posted a questionnaire. And if you read the internet, the interwebs, you probably heard about this. And I just want to tell you what I thought about it, because it, it actually has, it's not just ranting about an idiot. There's some points to this. This is his post. It says, Q&A. There are some things I've been curious about when it comes to females and the comic industry. So I've created a quick questionnaire to answer some of the things that, as a male, couldn't answer myself. And then he goes on to say, uh, you can post anonymously. Then he says, um, this isn't a hierarchy test, nor is it a girls are better than guys or vice versa example. I simply want to know where some females stand on the issue. These are meant for females, but anyone is welcomed to answer. And then he asks that people identify themselves as 
female or male. Now, I will say that a lot of people responded to this. I think it was like there's a hundred plus responses, and I think most of them are actually responses and not just people snarking at each other. But I haven't read all the comments because I'm not interested. And, you know, people like to answer questionnaires. That's totally fine. I didn't because I thought his questions were stupid and asinine. But if people choose to answer a questionnaire, that's great. Um, Let me just point out some things you may have noticed. He says he wants to know about some things I've been curious about when it comes to females and the comic industry, but he doesn't say what those things are. And then he says, uh, I simply want to know where some females stand on the, the issue, but he doesn't say what the issue is. So I was kind of like, okay, he's putting out a survey. Like I've said this before on the show, I've done surveys myself, like I've designed them. So I know what you're supposed to have like an idea before you design a survey and not just randomly fire questions at people shotgun style. It's like science. You have to have a hypothesis before you can develop a survey. But he's being coy and not telling us what his hypothesis is. The first section of questions are all the standard kind of things. Have you ever been to a comic convention? Do you have a pull list? What comics do you read? Do you bag and board? Blah, blah, blah. Second set of questions. And he prefaces this by saying, now here's where the risque part comes in. And he's he's put the accent wrongly on risque. Um, Before I begin, please bear in mind that these are based on male stereotypes of a comic book fanboy on controversial subjects or general questions that could spark some debate. I am not trolling, nor do I want a flame war. Just curious as to what you're thinking. Again, he doesn't say why he's collecting this. He doesn't say what the issue is or some things he wants to know about in relation to females in the comic industry. Basically, it's just a bunch of stupid questions fired shotgun style at a bunch of people. And some of the questions are interesting, like, uh, would you consider comics to be unholy, a bad influence on a child's psyche, or a source of violence? Would you openly admit to reading comics if you knew the people that we're talking to would make fun of you? Blah, blah, blah. Okay, whatever. Those are fine. But then there's these questions. Have you lost your virginity? Are you overweight or underweight by 20 or more pounds? Are you held by a mainstream level to be physically attractive? Do you consider yourself heterosexual, bisexual, homosexual, or undecided? What the fuck? What the fuck does your virginity have to do with comic books? Or stereotypes of comic books? Or anything? What the fuck? I sat there for like ten minutes going, what the fuck? What what could that possibly have to do with anything? Okay, go back to his premise. I think what he's trying to do is see if people match up to the accepted, quote-unquote, stereotype of a fanboy. So he's asking what, what he's implying, and of course he never says this, again, he's being coy, is that comic fanboys are, I guess, overweight or underweight, or I don't know what the sexuality thing is, and that I guess they're virgins. Now, I never made that assumption, and I don't think most people have made that assumption. My assumption based on reality and my experiences, is that people who are classically considered comic fanboys, it doesn't matter if they're virgins or not. What they lack is an ability to interact meaningfully with other people because they lack some experience there. has nothing to do with virginity. has nothing to do with your sexuality. probably has nothing to do with your, your social class, although there are probably people who know more about that than I do. Um, specifically, comic fanboys are, are mocked and I put fanboy in quotes again, because they don't know how to talk to women. Um, And it's nothing to do with sex. Because, as those of you who are real people know, 
you can sleep with a thousand people and still not have a clue as how to interact with the people you have sex with or anybody for that matter. Conversely, you can choose not to have sex and be 30 years old and be the warmest, most wonderfulest, most understanding social person on the face of the earth. Virginity has nothing to do with it. And the more I thought about this, the more I thought, this is one of those guys who, you know, when people comically say to you, oh, dude, you know, you just need to get laid. He thought they meant it. (laughs) He thought that by getting laid, by losing your virginity, this magical thing would happen. That suddenly, because um, if you're a boy, you stuck your dick somewhere, you were transformed from that awkward person into, you know, whatever it is you wanted to be. And you know what? That's bullshit. (laughs) As most of you have figured out by now, losing your virginity doesn't do anything. It's like when I was in sixth grade and we had confirmation, I was really psyched for something to happen when I was confirmed, when the bishop took his thumb and he put it in the oil and he like did the little thing on my forehead. I was waiting for the transformation and nothing happened. And that was when I became an atheist. And it's the same thing with losing your virginity. Nothing happens. Nothing magical happens when you lose your virginity, honestly. And I think there's a a whole group of people who think that that something magical does happen. So whatever, it's, it's the most ridiculous question. And then the other questions about, are you overweight or underweight or attractive? Like mainstream considers you attractive. What does that mean? What does that even mean? You can't, uh, that's not an objective thing. And it's not even a subjective thing. You know, there are plenty of people who think they're beautiful And society might say you're not, but fuck them. And there are plenty of people who think they're horribly ugly and they're perfectly fine. And, you know, fuck society for making them feel that way. So I just, that just twisted me around in so many ways. Have you lost your virginity? What the fuck? Okay. This was only surpassed by, (laughs) it's making me laugh just to think about it, the thing that he posted later in the week, which was his response to all this. Um, And he, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but he goes through saying, blah, 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 I thought it would be valuable, blah, blah, blah. Um, I'm... (laughs) Please note, I'm not a psychologist, nor do I know a lot about comic fan women. Hey, um, I'm just a guy trying to understand more about a specific audience. I'm just a guy trying to understand. Don't you see? I'm not one of those guys. I'm a nice guy. Putting words in his mouth here. Um, He gets... (laughs) He goes through a lot of these things. I'm going to skip right to the virginity question because these things are hilarious. Um... Have you lost your virginity? And now he's answering for himself. Yes. So this is the question I'm sure most of you have a problem with. Those that have a problem at all, it's a common stereotype of fanboys. I've just dealt with this. So I wondered how it does compared to fangirls. As well as attractiveness, I considered not putting it in there because some people could have a problem with it, which I understand. So I thought that suggesting the option, ignore it, would alleviate, he spelled alleviate wrong, any controversy. Um, obviously... I was obviously wrong. I left it in because it goes against the spirit of the survey, which is partly to examine stereotypes between fanboys and fangirls, which this survey does not examine the stereotypes between fanboys and fangirls. Um, Okay. This is great. This is for the question, do you consider yourself het, bi, homo, or undecided? He answers heterosexual. Big surprise. Then he says, since comics are a male-dominated culture, e.g. sports, car maintenance, music... Okay, pause. I don't know what he means by that, 
Um, E.G. means for example, and he's not, those aren't examples, and I don't know why music, well, anyway, back to him. One could inaccurately predict that a female comic reader could be a lesbian, which which I don't believe, just sort of putting it out there. (laughs) So this is a guy who thinks that lesbians are really straight guys in women's bodies. (laughs) Once again, what the fuck? In fact, that amused me so much, I posted it to the blog. Those of you who read the I Read Comics blog will see. And I called it stupidest quote on the internet today because I have not read anything that stupid in a really long time. And I want to point out that he does the thing at the end, which is totally um, passive-aggressive chicken shit. He says, which I don't believe. I'm just sort of putting it out there. No, dude, you do believe that, and you're just too chicken shit to say that you believe that, or that you thought secretly that that was the truth, or that there's some truth to it, but you just don't have, you know, the backbone to actually say that in public, so you're, quote-unquote, sparking debate by putting it out there. Oh, my God. I just cannot believe it. Okay, I'm not even going to go through the rest of this because it's so stupid. And then he closes by saying maybe he'd make some kind of survey or or paper out of this and oh my god it's just so incredible so the point of all this besides me ragging on it for your amusement and i hope you found it amusing because it amused me greatly is that this is a perfect example of a what lazy people do and you see this all the time on the internet people saying oh i have to write a paper for school on x subject and i don't know anything about it could somebody please tell me everything you know so i don't actually have to go to the trouble of doing any research That's what this guy has done. Rather than taking the time to go out there and read the many, many blogs that exist written by women who are comic book fans, and there are a lot of them, rather than taking the time to subscribe to, say, When Fangirls Attack and clicking through the links and reading people's opinion, rather than taking the time to go to his goddamn comic book shop, talk to the women who are shopping there, talk to the owner, talk to the people who work there, and find out some information, Rather than doing any of those things, he constructs a poorly worded shotgun questionnaire and posts it to a very small, very low-trafficked group on the internet and says, do my homework for me. That's pretty fucking lazy. The meta point is that I think this is the way comic book companies do their research. Pretty much. Maybe not even this good. I think they just hear things anecdotally. Maybe once in a while they'll do a little survey, a very informal kind of thing. They'll say, you know, go send this to 10 of your friends and we'll see what kind of answer you get. And that's how they decide what appeals to women or who comic book fans really are when it's not boys. That's what I believe. Because I'm telling you, I keep asking this question and I keep not getting an answer. How do they do their research? How do they find out about this stuff? No one is answering me. Maybe I will get a chance to ask somebody at WonderCon and find out the answer. So anyway, there you go. That was my my little rantage for the week. Um, I am now going to put some more of that marvelous Mayerson music in here. And then I want to talk about uh, Young Avengers.
Young Avengers. This is probably the newest thing that I've read in a really long time. And I want to thank Tony, who sent me the original trade of Sidekicks, and then Logan, who loaned me the second trade, Family Matters. This is the best new thing I've read in I don't know how long. This series, so far, totally rocks. In fact, as I said to Tony, I give it a Dave's Long Box box, fuck yeah, because it's that good. I think it's that good. This is a story almost from scratch, but it's still within the Marvel Universe, so it references all kinds of stuff that I know. And yet it creates new characters who are really interesting and cool and gives them a reason for being and makes them fight bad guys and it's very much a Marvel comic and I just think it's really cool. Um, I I knew nothing about this and I wasn't sure how good it was going to be, you know, like having read a a lot of Avengers. I haven't kept up on the storyline so I didn't know about the Avengers disassembled and all that other crap that was going on so I wasn't really like paying attention to that part of the plot but I was just really interested in a new set of teenagers. I mean, I, I liked stories with younger people in them. I like Teen Titans, and uh, I like um, the Legion stuff when they were really teenagers because there's something about it I just find really appealing. I liked Spider-Man when he was a teenager, too. So the whole concept of these guys getting together and kind of coming out of nowhere, which is how they're introduced. So um, first, let me just credit the writer and artist. The writer is Alan Heinberg and the pencils are done by uh, Jim Chung and various other people helped with the Young Avengers special which is collected in the second trade of Family Matters and I want to talk a little bit about that. Um, But I I think the art works really well. It's very bright and shiny and kind of cool. Um, They come out of, the Young Avengers come out of nowhere right in the very first issue. Jessica Jones is in it from Alias, which I love. I think it's great to see her character just, you know, being her cynical self. J. Jonah Jameson is right there in the very first scene. So immediately, you know, we're given the setting and and we know where we are. And then to have these new characters just sort of show up, we don't know who they are. And then we have to go through the process of finding out where they came from and, and what's up with them. And it's just, um, really interesting. So little little versions of the regular Avengers. There's Patriot, who's supposed to be like Captain America, or really like Bucky, actually, is, is more accurate. Um, there's Asgardian, who later turns into Wiccan, um, and he is sort of the Thor character. And then there's Hulkling, who is at first a, a younger version of Hulk, but then we find out he's really a shapeshifter later on. And Iron Lad, a, a younger version of Iron Man, although something happens to him eventually too. So it starts off with all boys at first, and then some female characters are added, which I was really happy to see. So there's Stature, um, Cassie, who's the daughter of Ant-Man, who got killed. So it's cool to see her, and she discovers her powers. And then um, a a non-powered character, who um, eventually becomes Hawkeye, uh, who gets referred to as Hawkingbird, cross between Hawkeye and Mockingbird for a while, which actually that was really funny. And in my mind now, she's Hawkingbird, and I can't quite refer to her as anything else, even though she's officially Hawkeye. Um, and she is just athletic and smart and knows how to shoot a bow and arrow and wants to do something because she's kind of bored with her life. And they're all actually teenagers in high school. And for the most part, they're pretty much drawn as teenagers, although I was really disturbed by the fact that Hawkingbird, um, a.k.a. Um, Kate is her real name, 
her breasts get bigger and bigger. And by the time we're sort of to the end of it, her tits have become the focus of any drawing that she happens to be in. And I hate that. I think that's awful. And also she goes from being drawn like maybe a 17 year old girl to being drawn more like a 27 year old woman, which is horrible. Um, so I was really disturbed by that and I really, really hope they stopped doing that because it has kind of ruined it for me. Uh, they put her in really overly sexually sexualized poses for no reason, give her an impractical outfit pretty much for no reason. Um, and, and I think they've just gone totally off the rails with her character, the way she's drawn. I think the way she talks and acts is still really good, but just the way she looks, it's gone right over from being sort of, you know, cool and maybe a little sexy to total wank material. Um, and I think stature, Cassie is actually drawn much more like a 14 year old girl is, although there have been a couple panels where she looked way older than that. But I'm looking at these panels right now in the first trade where she's trying on the costume for the full time, first time, and she looks like a 14 year old girl and that's great. And they should keep drawing them. Um, I think the way the boys are drawn, they also look pretty much like teenage boys do. So I was happy about that. Um, the in the first trade, I don't want to go into all the plot details, but it's very complicated and they encounter Kang the Conqueror and they have to kill him and something happens to Iron Lad, but he eventually ends up coming back sort of as the vision in a, in a twisted turn of events. Um, and then in the second book, uh, we pick up another character called Speed, um, who turns out to be the twin of, uh, as well, sorry, Wiccan, which is another long, complicated plot, and I could have done without some of that, but you know they have to make it complicated, and and that was all kind of cool. Um, the other really interesting thing, which I guess most everybody knows about, but I had no idea this was coming, is that um, two of the boys are gay and they're boyfriends, and they're so cute together. Um, I liked seeing Hulkling and Wiccan together. It's just very, very cute. So I hope they continue with that storyline. Everybody seems to be, you know, accepting and everything's cool. And it's not a big deal, which is the way it should be. Not a big deal at all. And I'm glad that they didn't show either of them uh, flipping out in stupid ways over the other one when he's in danger, as I think I mentioned once before, because I really, really hate that. They always do that with heterosexual couples, like the woman's in danger, so the guy throws caution to the wind and does really, really stupid fucking things. And if the guy's in danger, the woman just turns into a little puddle and can't function and insists that the whole world must be moved to save save this one person. And they don't do that. And there are a lot of situations, especially in the second trade, where that happens, where um, Teddy Hulkling is in danger a lot. Uh, The scrolls come, the Kree come, there's a big battle, and uh, he's sort of the linchpin for all that. But um, despite Teddy being in trouble, Billy doesn't freak out, and he doesn't lose his wits, and he doesn't melt into a puddle on the floor. He just stays a young Avenger. And we do get to see the young Avengers and the Avengers team up, which of course meant we had to see Spider-Woman's horrible costume and her really threatening breasts and her belly button, which I don't understand how you can see in a costume, but whatever. Um, So I really like young Avengers on the whole. Now, I'm going to read from another blog right now. Uh, It was pointed out by Kalinara in her blog that people have different perceptions of things. And a blogger mentioned something in his blog about Young Avengers that really didn't have an effect on me when I read it because I'm a a middle-aged white woman, but he's not. And this definitely um, 
struck a chord with him, and I accept his experience, and I recognize it, and now that he's pointed it out, it bothers me too. So I'd like to think that that makes me maybe a little more open-minded. Um, so he, um, let me just find the place where he gets into it here. So this blog is called um, Fourth Letter, and it's actually a blog by a bunch of guys, three different guys, and this one was written by David Hermanos Brothers. And um, it's called Young Avengers and Why I Can't Relate. And I will definitely um, put it, put the link in there. So he's talking about Young Avengers in the first plot line. So I'll, I'll have to explain a little bit. Um, the guy who is Patriot is named Eli. And he's black. And it's great. And they don't make a big deal out of this. And it turns out he was the grandson of Isaiah, who was the black super soldier right around Captain America time. And he tells a story about having superpowers because he got a blood transfusion from his grandfather turns out that that was a lie and he was really taking MGH, mutant growth hormone, to appear like a superhero because he wanted so bad to be a superhero like his grandfather. And everybody finds out about this and he feels really bad and he quits and then he comes back and he accepts being a superhero really without superpowers and then something happens at the end of the second trade and he does get superpowers. Okay, that's what you need to know. So in the blog... Um, David runs this down and he talks about them and goes through all their different powers and he says, after he tells you about the different superheroes, he says, one of these things is not like the other. Eli was a coward. He was weak and his idea of overcoming his hardships was not like the rest of the team, putting in that legwork and making yourself into a better person. It was to take the shortcut, get hopped up on MGH, then lie about being a super soldier to the people he called his friends. He's just another failure. He's a 1970s Luke Cage, Ebony White, and Bishop. He's Captain Marvel getting demoted and drummed out of the Avengers. It's weird. I've always loved these black characters that were true to life. Race is big in the life of every, almost every single black person I've ever met, but the biggest black character at Marvel, Storm, rarely ever had to address it, at least in my experience. Also, make no mistake, Storm is black. Her father was American. Bishop was from far enough in the future that I guess it didn't matter, and I haven't read enough Cloak and Dagger to really tell. Um... Milestone comics were a treat because they did deal with race. Their characters were black, white, Hispanic, Asian, whatever, but it didn't overpower the story. Most importantly, though, it wasn't so subdued as to be non-existent. Outside of very, various, a very special issue of, and Christopher Priest, Marvel and DC have been loath to deal with race in this way. I thought that maybe Eli would be the next Casper Cole, or maybe Longshot Virgil Hawkins. Instead, I get this bizarre stereotype. He's selfish. He's a coward. He's weak. He's a liar. He's a junkie. He's yet another young black male going down the wrong road because he was stupid. He's a stereotype. There was a storyline about Speedy, now Arsenal, being hooked on smack. Is there a comparison here? Come on, they were both heroes on drugs. No, not really. Speedy had the benefit of years of stories establishing him as a hero before he went down the wrong road. He turned to heroin after his life fell apart. Eli turned to MGH when he realized that he couldn't cut it. Speedy had natural skills before and after the drugs. Until Eli actually got a transfusion from his grandfather, he didn't have powers. No comparison. Um, and then he closes by saying, he wants Eli to be someone who is flawed but good at heart. I used to know Elijah Bradley's. I probably used to be one. I want no part of that. I thought that was an incredibly powerful analysis of the character and what it could have been and what they did with that character here. And not being someone who who is more 
connected to Eli in reality because I'm not black and I'm not young and I'm not a guy. It didn't really resonate with me. But I read this blog and it totally resonates with me now. I see what he's saying and I see that it was like really stupid to make Eli a stereotype like that. Like by the end of the second trade, he's redeemed and he has superpowers. But having his character go through that arc and yeah, being a coward and taking drugs and being a junkie essentially really just plays into the whole stereotype of young black guys being weak and cowardly in that way and putting on a lot of show but not having anything at the core. So I, I, I am convinced by this argument and I take his point of view and I hope that they do better things with Eli and, and Patriot in the future and don't let him re- revert back to that um, because it would be a real freaking shame if they did that. So um, I, I think it's really important when you're reading comic books to get other people's perceptions of it based on their experiences because yours is not the only one and other people have really valid points that will make you look at things in a new way and that's why blogging about comics is great because you're not going to get it anywhere else you're not going to get those points of view so um thank you david for enlightening me on that i I really feel like i have a much better perspective and i hope you keep writing about young avengers and i hope you keep taking marvel to task for doing stupid shit like that um i want to say one more thing about uh, Young Avengers, and I mentioned this briefly before about Kate being drawn like a much older woman. Kate Bishop is her last name. Sorry, I couldn't remember it right there. There's a couple panels where she's drawn and she's kind of standing in profile. And you can actually see the nipples on her breasts through her costume. And I'm assuming her costume is not made out of body paint. It's made out of something a little more protective than that. Why are we seeing her nipples? And furthermore, why... Does a great book like Young Avengers, which starts out so well, get turned into essentially jack-off material when it comes to Kate Bishop? Why do the women in comics always have to get turned into jack-off material when they're 15 and 16 years old? Why do you have to do that, comic book companies? Why does every single comic that has a woman in it almost almost universally have to get turned into wank material for some guy? Is that like some rule? that you have, that you can't not have it be that way. It, it just, I, the, I just looked through the second trade right now and I kept looking at these pictures and then there's Spider Woman and it's like, cut it out, just cut it out. You know, there's porn and that's fine. I'm fine with porn. I write porn. I enjoy porn. Porn is great, but I don't want to be reading a comic book knowing that it was either designed or being used as jack-off material by a large portion of the other people who are reading this comic. It's creepy. It creeps me out. It honestly creeps me out. So stop it. Okay, so I just had to get that rant in at the end. Oakley dokley. Um, let me wrap this up by talking about the next little piece of music that I'm going to play. Um, <laughs> I was just reminded of this song for a very complicated reason and I had to go seek it out and I had to go put it here um, on the show because I love it so very much and it brings us right back around to cartoons again Um, I remember seeing the movie The Aristocats when I was really young it's a Disney movie and it was released in the theaters and I saw it in the theaters when I was however old I was and I got the book I have the book of The Aristocats and at the time I when I was very young I didn't really realize why it was so weird Um, But it is a weird movie, but it's a great weird movie. And I think it's one of those not quite so popular Disney movies as some of the others. I mean, it's certainly not a Peter Pan movie and it's not Alice in Wonderland. But it is, as far as I know, an original Disney creation. It wasn't based on a book or anybody else's stories. Um, And it's just, it's totally wacky. Um, 
and it's aided in being a wacky story by the voices because Phil Harris, I love Phil Harris, also the voice of Baloo the Bear, did the voice of Thomas O'Malley the Alley Cat, and Ava Gabor did the voice of um, the, the the female cat here. And they had some kids doing the, the other voices. It also features Scatman Crothers doing another cat voice and various other people who you would probably recognize. It's the story of these cats and um, how they get separated from their owners and how they make their way back. And it's set in Paris around the turn of the century. But then there's some really weird anachronistic stuff in it, like um, Thomas O'Malley's friend Scat Cat, who is Scatman Crothers, play, they play jazz like jazz from a much later era. And then there's one who's a hippie. He's an English hippie cat (laughs) in like 1910 or something. It's really weird. Um, The other thing about this movie that's really cool is that the music is fantastic. They did a great job with the music. And the song I'm going to put at the end here is one of the best. It's called Everybody Wants to Be a Cat. And it's just a wonderful performance. Now, I was thinking about this song and singing it to myself. And I went and I, I got the version that's on the soundtrack to the Aristocats. It's on some Disney collection. And you know what? That version sucks. It's totally anemic. It's nothing like the version that's in the movie. So I actually had to get the movie and rip this version of it and put it on here so you hear some of the sound effects for the action that happens in it some of the dialogue that's going on in it but it's a wonderful wonderful bouncy song it's full of jazz it's full of great stuff full of great vocal performances by phil harris and scatman crothers and big points to you if you recognize some of the other character actors who do it um, including the extremely racist portrayal of an asian it's a siamese cat but it's uh, a whole awful chinese stereotype that's in there you know go disney with the racist stereotypes they're still doing that as far as i know um, but yeah, everybody wants to be a cat. It's such a great song. The other really weird thing about this movie um, is that you know, I I heard I think it was Graham Chapman tell this at, at a I saw him at a lecture once. He was talking about the theory of comedy. He was saying that in comedy, and I think this is true for cartoons as well, you establish some rules, and for comedy to work, you can't just wantonly break the rules. You have to have the audience with you to understand what's happening so you know what's funny and what's not funny. And I think it's it's absolutely true for cartoons that you have to establish what is the rule. So, right, in a cartoon, if you have talking animals, you have to establish that either they talk to themselves and humans can't understand or they talk and humans can understand them. Like in the Stuart Little movies, right? They Stuart talks and people understand him. Um in Bugs Bunny cartoons, it doesn't matter. Bugs is just, a, he's like a person. Everybody talks to him and he talks to everybody. Okay, fine. Those are the rules. We understand that. In Disney movies, it gets a little weird. So in Aristocats, um, the cats talk to each other. Seemingly, humans don't know that they talk to each other. The cats understand what the humans say. The humans seem to perceive that the cats are smarter than we would think cats are. Although cats are pretty fucking smart, I have to say that. Um, but the cats behave in the movie like cats. They they don't walk on two legs. They do play musical instruments, which is a little weird. <laughs> um, I guess they dance on two legs. Yeah, that happens in during this song that I'm going to play. Um, but then at the end of the movie, the cats, Scat Cat and everybody, and they all move in in the human household. And the humans don't seem to think it's weird that the cats play musical instruments. And I don't understand that. I remember recently watching it and thinking, okay, that breaks all the rules right there. Either they're cats or they're not cats. Either 
they're like people or they're not people. You can't have them like drinking milk out of saucers and licking their own butts in one scene and then in the next scene playing these really great trumpet solos and humans thinking all that is perfectly okay. So I don't really know what happened to that breaking of reality, but it, it does strike me as being um, more than, than a little odd. But it's a great movie anyway. If you ever get a chance to see it, I think you would like it. So um, let me turn it over to Thomas O'Malley and Scat Cat, and I think you'll enjoy this. Everybody wants to be a cat Because a cat's the only cat Who knows where it's at Tell me everybody's picking up on that feline beat Cause everything else is obsolete I wouldn't shoot Where when the horn makes you wish you weren't born Every time he plays But with the square in the act You can set music back To the game and days some corny birds who tried to sing Still a cat's the only cat Who knows how to swing Who wants to dick long head kick Stuff like that When everybody wants to be a cat A square with a horn Makes you wish you weren't born Every time he plays Oh, a rinky-dinky-dinky With a square in the act You can set music back To the caveman days Oh, a rinky-dinky Oh! 